Assistant breaking news. Dub or bullshit. Dub or bullshit. No bullshit. Merry Christmas, everybody. 2020, Mark. Yay. You think we'll remember that one in history? I think I think just a little bit, yeah. I don't think so. What? I don't. Do you remember? You think the worst is yet to come? I don't think you, you're looking back like it was a really all that much that history would remember. I think we'll remember the pandemic. Uh, nobody remembered the Spanish flu, right? Uh, don't, sure. don't forget World War One ended in 1918, so. That's true. Someone might write a book in 100 years from now, they'll look back on it when the next pandemic hits. <laughs> How you know, Fauci's getting a shot? Uh, cause he's old. Does he work in nursing homes? Uh, maybe all those people are done. Maybe. No, it depends on the state, right? Maybe it's cause he was hanging around Trump and Giuliani. True, yeah. Maybe he wants to, and that's why he's getting it. Well, anyway, folks, uh, this is a Christmas special, and Mark didn't really want to work. And, you know, I mean, if he's not here to press record. Can you blame me? No, I'm, I'm with you. All right. So, uh, Mannequin Joe, who's Joe? 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 Right. Joe? Yeah, he's there. He's there. You just have to know that's. You can hear him breathing. <sighs> Mannequin Joe. <laughs> Mannequin Joe came up with a good idea. We're going to. Uh, just because it's Christmas, keep it light. Gonna take some uh, excerpts, some readings uh, from my two books, uh, uh, Shit Show and uh, Detroit. And um, what are these uh, e-books? What are they? What kind of books are these? Audio, audio books. Yeah, audio books. Mm-hmm. So, in the first one, Shit Show, the the chapter's brass balls, and it has to do with Detroit. All of this has to do with Detroit specifically. Um, and that's me reading it. Yeah. And then uh, Detroit, unbeknownst to me, there was an audio book. I didn't know there was an audio book. They cut an audio book. They didn't tell me there was an audio book. And it's not me doing it. And I just heard it for the first time. You don't know if it's even a human being reading it. It sounds like like a, a computer, re- you know, reading Braille. Yeah. I mean, and I reached down into my pocket and pulled out a pencil. Weird. It lacks a certain amount of emotion, but uh, but hey, you know the, the good part is you don't have to read it yourself. I mean, you being the reader. Maybe I'll redo it. Some point. Should redo it. But uh, I'm interested to hear it. Anyway, the words are good, so you should have a uh, Tom Waits uh, hire Tom Waits to read it for you. Good old acquaintance, be forgotten. He's so bad. Yeah. Everyone uses uh, Gilbert Gottfried. To, uh, read stuff to, uh, go off the board you, you can pay Gilbert to leave uh, you a phone message can't you yeah he'd be happy to how much that. does he charge for that um, I think a hundred bucks I should do that it's a hundred bucks down being gone freak yeah but you'll be even more a slave to your phone to have to you know finish it and get it out immediately to people you know who once did mine for me Real cool, real, you know, for free. It was Hewell Perkins. Oh, really? Yeah, and I just got sick of listening to Hewell, so I deleted it. I, I, I wish I wouldn't have because, you know, I like hearing him again, but every time. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> what are what are the chapters? Do you want to uh, tease them? Uh, uh, in Shit Show, it is Brass Balls. Yep. 
It's uh, Mike Duggan uh, and Barry Ellen Tuck come to meet up in that chapter. Ah, speaking of Barry. Speaking of Barry. That was, that. What a natural segue. Remember our good friends at ADR. If you're a construction outfit doing business in Michigan, how do you navigate the bureaucracy? How do you keep to the rules? How do you grow your company and keep you know whose hands out of your pockets? Yeah. You call Barry Ellen Tuck at ADR Consultants. That's what you do. Honest, ethical, smart. 248-318-9424 for a free consultation. ADR Consultants, experts in procurement, government compliance, information technology, and property management. Right. Get the job done right on time on budget. ADR Consultants. 248-318-9424. Go with ADR for your company. Fuck. Just have him do it. Just have him do it. Just have Barry Ellen take care of everything. Well, you're going to, you're going to, anyway, municipality, municipality. No. and law enforcement agency. Yeah, have him do all your reads. So <laughs> you're going to find out like what he's all about. So ha- have a listen to this brass balls from shit show. Just a few days before Trump was to announce his candidacy, I ran down and tackled a 20 year old black man named Orlando Thomas after he had mugged a friend of mine and stolen her cell phone. There I was, trying my damnedest to keep this 200-pound man pinned to the pavement in the middle of a busy downtown intersection during lunch rush. He threatened to kill me if he got loose. I hadn't considered the possibility until he brought it up. We were just three blocks from police headquarters, but a squad car wouldn't arrive for the better part of 20 minutes. Apparently, in the new Detroit, the apprehension of a strong-armed bandit who was flailing away in the middle of two-way traffic was not a high priority. After some time, an FBI agent on his lunch break sauntered up with a set of slipknot handcuffs jerry-rigged from a pair of shoelaces. As I struggled with Thomas, I wondered where the agent got the laces. He was wearing loafers. Upset that he had threatened my life, I whispered into Thomas's ear that I promised he'd do time. He had a tattoo on his left forearm of Dyson Flames. You just crapped out, motherfucker, I whispered in his ear. And so now we were in district court awaiting his arraignment. Me, the witness. He, the defendant. The guy was a habitual criminal, a three-striker with convictions for breaking and entering, larceny, and robbery who had done no real jail time. In the revolving door system of the Detroit criminal justice system, he had always been given probation and ordered to pay court costs. He would neglect the court costs, violate his probation, and promptly commit a new crime only to receive probation and court costs again. That's how it goes in America. The jails and prisons were overflowing with young black men. There was no room for attempted murderers and felons in possession of illegal firearms, much less this guy. That's why a shit for brains like Thomas was left free to prey on people after the briefest stays in the jailhouse. But not this time. Not the fourth time. I'd made Thomas that promise. Welcome to the shit show, son. The judge was a swell enough guy. He recognized me from TV and wished me good morning. And then his clerk emerged from the chambers like a high-end manservant, carrying a tray containing Danish and a sweating decanter of ice water. The only thing missing was the white gloves. The judge nodded appreciatively toward me and smiled sweetly. Go ahead, help yourself. I got the feeling the judge knew that I knew that he was the one responsible for Thomas's most recent probation release and didn't want me shaking out the sheets and hanging him up to dry on the 10 o'clock news. The strawberry strudel being dangled before me seemed to affirm that. Mr. Leduff, would you like some water? No, thank you, Your Honor. Some pastry, then? It's really quite delicious. No, thank you. 
the citizens seated in the galley, beaten down by an unresponsive and often unfair bureaucracy, marveled at the dignity provided me. They, of course, were offered nothing. The Motor City really was little different from Chicago or Baltimore or Philadelphia. The focus was on the shiny new downtown buildings, while beneath it all, the foundations of the civic endeavor were crumbling. Thomas was sentenced to three to fifteen years in prison. Before being taken away, he struggled with the bailiffs, shouted ungracious things about my mother, while strongly suggesting I take some time to pleasure myself. I had to laugh, imagining him telling the boys on the cell block that he was doing a three-year minimum over a purple cell phone. I laughed until I walked outside the courthouse doors. Across the street was a $200 million pile of rubble that was supposed to be the new county jail complex. That is, until I exposed it a few years earlier as a swamp of incompetence and cronyism. There had been no master blueprint or budget for the proposed building. What there had been was plenty of money for connected Republican contractors who in turn contributed to Democratic county political bosses who pushed the unnecessary and unaffordable project through. Once we had exposed this, construction ground to a halt. What was left, what I was staring at, was a mockery. Stanchions to nowhere, cell blocks exposed to the elements, weeds and gravel and dust. Imagine what might have been done for the citizens with that $200 million plus interest. Nobody had gone to prison for this outrage. It was lunchtime at that very hour, and I imagined every silk suit associated with this stinking deal, eating steak somewhere, laughing it up over a glass of Bordeaux. Meanwhile, dipshit Orlando Thomas was getting a bologna sandwich, a box of milk, and a one-way ride to the state penitentiary. Brass Balls Detroit, Winter I was in bed perusing the thinning Sunday paper. Buried inside was another glowing story about the demolitions in Detroit. The U.S. Department of Treasury was to send more than a quarter billion dollars in leftover federal mortgage bailout money for homeowners so the city could tear down some of the 40,000 abandoned houses. Detroit's blight had become famous since the global economic collapse. Tourists came to romp in its enormity. For those who lived within it, the blight was a cancer, pulling down the spirit and the health of the citizens. With each successive story, the reported number of demolished houses kept changing. First it was 4,000 houses, then it, next it would be 6,000 houses, and then 5,000 houses. It made me curious. Tethered to my professional restraining collar and grounded in Detroit, Michigan, I decided to do some digging in my own backyard. What I found was arithmetical alchemy. More than half the time, the lowest bidder wasn't awarded the contracts and the price of demolitions had ballooned 50% since the last mayor, Dave Bing, a former NBA great, no more for his jump shot than his managerial competence. And who was the self-admitted mastermind of this boondoggle? Mayor Mike Duggan. I wasn't surprised. The citizens really didn't know who they'd elected. The press, preoccupied with the bankruptcy, never truly vetted him. The people still called him Dugan when it was actually pronounced Duggan, exactly the same pronunciation as Patrick J. Duggan, a federal court judge who also happened to be the mayor's father. The elder Duggan had undoubtedly proved a helpful connection in the ambitious and troubled political career of the son. Wherever Mike Duggan went, the Fed seemed to follow. 
And yet, nothing ever stuck. Accusations of graft and no-bid contracts at Detroit Metropolitan Airport dogged his administration when he was deputy county executive. His boss, Wayne County Executive Ed McNamara, died in the middle of the federal probe into the airport, but by then, Duggan had moved on, unscathed, to become county prosecutor. But not for long. Campaign finance irregularities, a grand jury investigation, and more no-bid contracts may have been contributing reasons as to why he resigned his post prematurely. He was then named by Governor Jennifer Granholm, also a product of the McNamara machine, as head of the financially struggling Detroit Medical Center complex. With no hospital executive experience, Duggan would eventually broker the sale of the facilities to a for-profit healthcare company, but not before the Duggan-led DMC was fined $30 million by the federal government for fraud and kickbacks. Even so, Duggan, the Teflon leprechaun, got a $2 million payout and moved on. Detroit was desperate for a new start, and compared to his opponent, Sheriff Benny Napoleon, who himself had been caught up in the county jail scandal, Duggan appeared the fresher of two soiled socks. Now we were here again, more problems with the public's money. After my first story on the demolition irregularities hit, Duggan convened the dog and pony show with the city council. I was not invited, but I showed anyway. His honor explained to the council that the cost overruns were simply a matter of inflation and the price of good, clean dirt to fill the holes where the houses once stood. He also said the program's problems had been inflated by the media. Me. And the next time I came knocking, Duggan promised he would handle me himself. That's when I got a call from a man named Barry Ellentuck, who had served as the chief of demolition for Mayor Bing. Ellentuck, a short, bald power lifter from New Jersey, had been hired by the state of Michigan to monitor the federal money being funneled through it to the city of Detroit and Duggan. He told me he had information I might be interested in. We met in a dank contractor's garage in a shattered corner of the city where the grass went unmowed and the potholes unpatched. Ellen Tuck handed me a thumb drive that contained a raft of documents and email exchanges which showed what appeared to be collusion and price-fixing between a small group of contractors and the mayor's hand-picked executives. I called the mayor and was summoned to his office a few days later. I laid out the documents on his conference table and implausibly, Duggan admitted on camera that he had indeed instructed his men to negotiate a preset price with a hand-picked group of contractors, many of whom had made political contributions to him. In the end, those hand-picked contractors with inside information won the work at inflated prices they had established themselves. Graft goes on everywhere in America. Remember that the New Orleans mayor went to prison for padding his pockets with Hurricane Katrina money. Remember that four out of the previous seven Illinois governors had been sent to prison for corruption. Remember that in Albany, New York, the state legislature was perpetually cranking out turds of political putrefaction, and the leaders of both the state Senate and Assembly were at that very moment being convicted of corruption and sent to prison. One conviction was later vacated, and the other was overturned. But Detroit was special. Maybe I was biased because this was my hometown, or maybe I was outraged because the Motor City was all the way broke and the federal government had just sent life-altering money to clean up the neighborhoods where the most destitute children in urban America lived, children who routinely played in fetid piles of rotting housing stock. 
It's worth remembering that former Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick was doing the better part of three decades in the federal pen for, among other things, swinging contracts. And Kilpatrick wasn't even the first Detroit mayor to go to prison. I reminded Duggan of all this. He reacted like a cornered possum. He snarled, called my stories lies. He hissed, threatening multiple times over the course of the next weeks to sue me for defamation because I had called his demolition executives overpaid minions who couldn't even manage a candy store. He curled up in a ball and played dead, refusing follow-up interviews with me and demanding that all questions be put in writing. City Hall mocked me on Facebook and the city's official webpage. Basically, the mayor of Detroit pulled a Trump before Trump pulled a Trump, and my bosses got worried. Fake news. Any further luncheon dates with his honor were out of the question. Ellen Tuck called me a few days after another of these stories aired, saying a reporter from the Free Press was calling, wanting to see the emails himself. What should I do, he asked. Give him everything, I said. Normally, it was the TV that cannibalized the newspaper's work without attribution. I thought I was doing my company a solid by having a competitor vet the story because nobody else in the local press wanted to touch it. No one wanted to dump on Detroit. It didn't fit the narrative of Comeback City. But was it a comeback? In the neighborhoods where black people lived, unemployment was too high and property values were too low. Violent crime was through the roof. Thousands of families were being tossed from their homes due to tax foreclosures. Those homes were being stripped of anything worth stealing by scrappers, and more houses appeared on the demolition lists. And of course, those demolition prices had exploded, making it impossible for the neighborhoods to tread water. Give the newspaper report of the documents you gave me, I told Ellen Tuck, because if this played out like I thought it would, yet another Detroit mayor would, or at least could, be indicted. A month or so later, the story landed in the free press. City officials and hand-picked companies agreed to a contract price for massive project before others could submit bids. Ellen Tuck had brass balls, but even brass balls get crushed under the weight and power of the machine. The day following the newspaper story, like a lightning bolt, the Attorney General of the State of Michigan charged Alan Tuck himself with fraud of attempting to overbuild the city program by $6,000 during his role as the assessor of the program. Never mind that millions of federal dollars had evaporated without a wisp of a paper trail, or that the air the children breathed was poisoned with asbestos and lead as a consequence of the subpar demolitions. The mayor wasn't getting charged by the AG. It was the whistleblower who was taking it on the chin. It reeked of a political hit. I was called into the boss's office. He carried the awful look of a man who'd swallowed sour milk. And why wouldn't he? He received a gleeful email from Duggan's lawyer after the announcement of Ellen Tuck's charges, reiterating their demand for a retraction and an apology for defaming the mayor's men. How far did this mayor's tentacles reach? Let's lay off the mayor for a while, the boss said. And who could blame him? Who ever heard of a public official suing the press for holding his feet to the fire? It was outrageous. It was unconstitutional. And it worked. Ten months later, the mayor would convene a press conference in which he would admit that his minions could not manage a candy store. The state-of-the-art demolition program he'd so loudly crowed about had been quietly shut down by the feds for two months during which time the improper billing of millions of federal dollars had been uncovered by investigators. 
All of this had been supervised by the minions. The mayor himself was shocked, shocked to hear of the dirty deeds. The mayor announced one minion had resigned. The minion later told me that he'd been fired. He also told me he took direct orders from the mayor. Well, that was something. This next segment from my book, Detroit, chapter called uh, Cheaper Than a Move. And it's brought to you by American Coney Island, Detroit's oldest family-owned restaurant and birthplace of the famous Detroit Coney Dog, Chili Mustard Vidalia Onions. Downtown at the corner of Lafayette and Michigan Avenue. Can't miss it. It's the red, white, and blue building. It's open from, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Whatever. Carry out only, yeah. right? But for it, now. It's open till 10 o'clock on the weekends. Uh, come on in for lunch anyway. It's, uh, again, Michigan and Lafayette. You can always send a Coney kit uh, for Father's Day. Independence Day. Father's Day, that seemed like a but random... But no more. Random holiday to pull out. I'm throwing them out. I'm just trying to get Ar- to the... Arbor Day, any day. I think there's a three-week hiatus. Just trying to get to the point. <laughs> trying to be clever, man. You can't get it for New Year's Day now. Too late, folks. Too late. <laughs> um, that was a bear. Uh, we packed a thousand of those. Really? Yeah. Good. Well, it's good. I'm glad you're just them out. A dozen dogs with all the fixings right to your or your friend or your loved one's front door. Go to AmericanConeyIsland.com. This one's cheaper for, uh, than a movie. It's about a murder of a little girl leading to the murder of a guy that was going in the police academy. It's just, it's just it's insane. Awful. No, it's insane. Cheaper than a movie. You're going to love it. Enjoy. Arsonists do their best work at night, as do murderers. And so it stands to reason that homicide dicks should work the graveyard shift. But it's a bad thing to give your number to these types of cops because they like to ruin your sleep. One evening, homicide detective Sergeant Mike Martell called me while I was curled up on the couch. He said he had a scene I might be interested in. I slid my trousers on and drove to the southwest side. There was a doctor or something who had his Mercedes-Benz ruined by his brains splattered all over the leather interior. Look at it, the detective said, shining his flashlight on the dead man. He was slumped over the wheel, almost like he was leaning to change the radio station. From the passenger side, you could see his teeth. All of his teeth. Half his face was gone. Glass stuck to his golf shirt. His shoes were in need of a competent polish. Did you bring a camera? The detective asked. No. Too bad. Good picture. He pulled off the rubber gloves from his large, nail-bitten hands. He slipped them into his suit pocket. It was hot, but he still wore a hat, a pork pie with a feather in it. It looked ridiculous, but that's a Detroit murder thing. The homicide cops wear hats. Still, his hat didn't fit, and I never knew Martell to wear one. He must have borrowed it. He was clowning me on the crime set. Murder does that to a man's mind if he stares into it long enough. Shouldn't try painting the town red in this part of town, he lectured the corpse, pantomiming pity for the dead man in the expensive car who really didn't deserve any. It's usually your own blood that gets used for paint. He turned to me. You hungry? We sat in a local diner, a run-down joint with walls the color of an old man's teeth. I watched the detective tear into a chili dog. He weighed 350 pounds and was trying that meat-only diet. The whole shit is corrupt from top to bottom, he said through his mustache and a mouthful of dog. Cops to judges, 
The fucking radios in the cars don't even work. Why do you think so many guys are leaving the department? And then he launched into the craziest story of true life murder I'd ever been told. You should look into this one. It's totally fucked. In January 2008, a teenage street tough named Deandra Woolfolk made plans to avenge a failed hit on his boss, Darnell Cooley, a reputed drug dealer who was lying in a hospital in a coma. Woolfolk tried to enlist the help of a neighborhood mope named Perry to be the getaway driver. Perry declined, insisting he had to work that night. But Perry never went to work. Perry didn't even have a job. Instead, Perry went to the intersection of Fenkel and Wyoming, where he had been told the hit would take place, to watch. Before Perry arrived, however, the 34-year-old picked up his 16-year-old brother and three teenage girls, including 15-year-old Martha Barnett. It was 2 a.m. on a school night. They went shopping for Slurpees and snack cakes. It was cheaper than a movie, the detective said, launching into his second dog. That's the same thing Nevin told me about arson, I thought. Cheaper than a movie. In any event, that evening's entertainment didn't turn out to be as cheap as he figured. Perry either forgot or did not know that the intended target of the hit drove a black jeep. Just like his. And when Woolfolk and his hit squad came careening around the corner, they did not stop at the jeep to inquire. One opened up with an AK-47. Woolfolk, sitting in the front passenger seat, raised a 9mm pistol, pointed, and pulled the trigger. What's going on? Little Martha screamed. When the smoke cleared, little Martha Barnett was dead with a gunshot wound to the head. Woolfolk got away for a couple months until he was swept up in a dope raid on the city's west side. He was arrested among a cache of weapons and narcotics. Two days after his arrest, Woolfolk was interrogated by Sergeant Martell. During that taped interrogation, he was read his Miranda rights. And on that tape, he admitted that he was in the car when the girl was murdered and that he had indeed tried to shoot, but that his gun jammed. How can I be responsible for a gun I didn't fire? He asked. The driver and the shooter with the AK-47 were convicted of first-degree murder, but Woolfolk's lawyer, who was married to a judge, argued that his client had repeatedly asked to speak with a lawyer before he confessed, but was denied one by detectives. The judge believed him and threw out his confession on the grounds that Woolfolk probably had asked for a lawyer since he knew the legal system so well. With little other evidence, the prosecutor was forced to drop the charges. Woolfolk walked. Fast forward six months. Robert Alexander had gone to Arturo's Jazz Club in Southfield, a suburb of Detroit, to celebrate his 33rd birthday. He went with a group of guys from the barbershop and their girlfriends. Among them was his best friend, Anthony Alls. Also, there was Woolfolk, along with Kingpin Darnell Cooley, who had gotten over his coma and was feeling better. The evening began as a good one. Champagne was flowing, the music was sweet. Then someone from Woolfolk's table spoiled the evening by fondling one of the women at Alexander's table. Alexander, a large man weighing more than 250 pounds, went over to straighten it out. When police arrived, they found Alexander lying amid upset tables, a broken bottle, and his own blood. He was face up, unconscious, and gasping for air. Then he died. There was only one willing witness, his friend Anthony Alls and Alls 
put the finger squarely on Woolfolk and Cooley and a third man named Elan Johnson. A few weeks later, Owls was leaving his job at a Detroit barber shop. He walked around the corner and opened the hood of his 88 Bronco. This was the usual routine for Owls. The power steering pump leaked like a sandbag, and before he would start the motor, he would fill the reservoir with fluid. He was meaning to take it into the mechanic to get it fixed. While Alls was stooped over the quarter panel, someone approached from behind and unloaded six shots into his back. Alls was spun around by the force of the barrage and took a seventh in the chest. He stumbled backward and collapsed on the sidewalk. Then he died. Instead of the mechanic, Alls went to the morgue. The killer calmly walked around the corner and disappeared. He'd been subpoenaed to appear in court just five hours before he was murdered, Martell said, spearing his chili fries with a plastic fork. So much for the meat-only diet, I was thinking. For whatever reason, they provided no protection for him, he said. Nobody got a look at all this killer. Two days later, police arrested a man breaking into his ex-girlfriend's house. The man, not wanting to do another stretch in prison, said he had information on Alza's murder. The man said he did paid hits himself and had information on a handful of other murders as well. He wanted to be an informant, and this was all on police videotape. Do you know Alza was scheduled to go into the police academy? Martell asked me. No shit, I said, writing the detail down on a napkin. No shit, he said, slurping his diet Pepsi. He was basically a cop. But before Martell could put the informant to work, get him wired and get him back on the streets, a junior prosecutor turned the hitman's taped interrogation over to the judge and the defense lawyers. Without a living, breathing witness, the prosecutor was trying to show that Alls was killed to keep him quiet. This, he hoped, would convince the judge to allow the dead man's statement as evidence in court. Martell said he pleaded with a prosecutor to stall for a few more weeks while he used the hitman to gather information on the murders by wiring him up. He even begged the prosecutor to call in sick to court. The prosecutor refused. I told that asshole to give me 30 days and we can get all them fuckers, Martell said, scanning the joint for eavesdroppers. We were the only ones in there except the fry cook and the girl at the register. They were watching TV. I noticed Martell had dribbled chili on his tie. The prick refused, flat out refused. Said he wasn't going to break the rules of the court. So he gets to be a boy scout and we're going to get some very bad men back on the street. Motherfucker. He picked up the check. When a cop picks up a check, you know he's serious. You want me to have him call you? Who? The hitman, my informant. He's scared for his life because his name is now out on the street. Call me? Yeah, sure. Give him my cell number, I guess. Suddenly, I was in the middle of a gangster picture, and I didn't have the script. Is this for Christmas, this show? Yeah, this is all uplifting. Oh, do you know Christmas is brought to you by Luke Nowacki? Oh, he'll make it merrier. How crass and commercialized has it really become? I'll tell you how, but it's sponsored by Luke Nowacki at Pinnacle <laughs> Wealth, 248-663-4748. Get rational financial advice. We talked a lot last night. He was, he was given red. Red plays the Good. markets. Good, he should. Everyone should. Red knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Here's what Luke has to say. Look, I mean, whether you're like a, a saving, a, not a savings loan, but a, a collection of small town banks, which he services. 
Oh, also really? Better return for the 401ks, not just the six or seven options. He's created 38 of them. Good. Taylor made. He's a smart guy. And he wants you to know, look, you should have a strategy that tailors your life and expectations, okay? Call him, uh, Luke Nowacki, 248-663-4748. Stocks, bonds, do you move your 401k? What about your kid's college savings plan? Is there going to be college? Do you have a kid? Think about it. Luke Nowacki, Pinnacle Wealth, 248. Do you have a kid? I, I hope you would know that answer. What's this number, 248? I'm sorry. 248-663-4748. I mean, do you? Maybe you're an absentee father. You might. You might. You better be prepared. <laughs> you behind on the child support? You never know. Mm. Luke, will, Luke will help figure that out, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Securities and investment advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Inc. Member FINRASIPC. Royal Alliance Associates Inc. is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of Royal Alliance Associates Inc. But that tone, the tone of that disclaimer does not fit the rest of the show. Dude, we're just trying to get out of here, yeah, man. Merry right. Christmas, everybody. Listen I love this. you. Okay, look, uh, this uh, next segment uh, is also from my book, Detroit, and American Autopsy. It's two chapters next to each other. One's called Boom. One's called Bust. How Detroit came to be and what happened to us. All starting with the King of France. Think about that. Why would it start with the King of France, Mark? I have no idea. That's why I'm going to listen. Boom. Detroit would never have been if not for the beaver. Louis XIII, the ambiguously homosexual King of France, who had a double set of teeth and a pronounced stutter, was fond of prancing about the streets of Paris wearing a beaver pelt hat. As it is with Europeans, the King of England decided he too enjoyed prancing about the streets of London in a beaver pelt hat. The style caught on, and the beaver became all but extinct in Europe. The next king of France, Louis' son Louis XIV, dispatched men to the New World to procure more beaver skins and instructed a man who called himself the Seor de Cadillac to establish a fort in the lower Great Lakes to block the English advance on his fur monopoly. On June 5, 1701, Cadillac and 200 men shoved off from Montreal in 25 canoes. Commandant Cadillac was a hustler. His real name was Antoine LeMay, and it is believed he had stowed away on a ship to escape debts in France, arriving in the New World in 1683. He quickly learned the land and the customs of the natives, which made him invaluable to the crown. Cadillac also illegally trafficked in liquor and furs with the natives and was, for a short time, thrown in prison. That would also make Cadillac Detroit's first dope dealer. Cadillac chose the strait, Detroit in French, that connects Lake Erie to Lake Huron, the gateway to the entire Great Lakes Basin and its copious beaver, as the site of his new Fort Pontchartrain du Detroit. And thus, Detroit was born in July 1701. My family was here from the earliest days. It began with my ancestor, Joseph Chevalier, a Frenchman from Normandy who came to Montreal to carve a life out of the wilderness. He took as his wife, Francoise Marthe Barton, one of the Fille du Roi, or King's Daughters, a group of 800 women sent under the sponsorship of Louis XIV to marry French settlers and populate New France. She gave Joseph Chevalier 13 children, including Jean Chevalier, a coureur de bois, 
literally a runner of the woods, a wild breed of man who lived among the natives, drank and smoked heavily, could paddle a canoe at fifty-five strokes a minute, and thumbed his nose at the authority of the crown. Chevalier arrived at Fort Detroit in 1705, not four years after its founding by Antoine Cadillac. Detroit was a dangerous frontier town with three bands of rival Indians living on its outskirts. In 1706, a priest and a soldier were killed in an Indian uprising, making my great-grandfather Chevalier a material witness to the first recorded murder in Detroit. And like tens of thousands of murders in Detroit since then, the priest's homicide remains unsolved, a cold case. Detroit, in the 19th century, was the center of the nation's carriage and wheel and stove industries because of its lumber and the rich ore deposits in the upper reaches of Michigan. This set the stage for tinkerers like Ransom Olds, who was among the nation's largest carriage manufacturers before he turned to cars. Henry Ford, a farmer, built his first automobile plant in Highland Park in 1899. Detroit would rapidly become the world's machine shop, its factory floor, growing in population from 300,000 to 1.3 million in the 25 years following Ford's grand opening. General Motors was founded in 1909, and a host of other car companies blossomed. Chrysler, Packard, Studebaker, Hudson, Olds, and Dodge among them. In 1919, the young and hungry men of GM devised an ingenious scheme to supplant Ford as the number one car maker in the world. Credit. Ford, a notorious miser and social ascetic, did not believe it was a good idea for Americans to buy consumer goods like automobiles on credit. He opted for the layaway plan, allowing a buyer to pay a little each month until he had the car paid for in its entirety. The problem is, this took five years, and it was hard to hold on to a factory job for that long. So General Motors came up with a financing arm, the General Motors Acceptance Corporation, or GMAC. Over the next decade, most durable goods like cars and refrigerators and washing machines were bought on a down payment and a monthly installment payment, plus interest. The first credit card was issued in 1950 by the Diners Club, and by that time, General Motors had overtaken Ford as the number one car maker in the world. American dominance, as well as consumerism and debt, were in full bloom. Nearly a century after its founding, GM had more than $1 trillion loaned to car buyers and had expanded into other businesses, like home mortgages. During the Roaring Twenties, fueled by growing assembly lines, the population of the Motor City surpassed those of Philadelphia, Boston, and Baltimore, old East Coast port cities that were founded on maritime shipping when the world moved by boat. The Europeans marveled at the rapturous whirl of making and spending in the new America. At the center of this economic dynamo was Detroit and its flaming smokestacks. It is the home of mass production, very high wages, and colossal profits, of reckless installment buying and shifting labor surplus, wrote the British politician and author Ramsey Muir in 1925. It regards itself as the temple of a new gospel of progress to which I will venture to give the name Detroitism. The air over Detroit was ashen and sooty, 
the color of a filthy dish rag. The water in the river was so poisoned, it was said you could bottle it and sell it as paint thinner. Detroit was choking on industry. In 1934, the last beaver was sighted in the Detroit River. Bust On June 1, 2009, General Motors declared bankruptcy following Chrysler, which had done so a month earlier. Ford was teetering. For the first time in anyone's memory, every auto factory in Michigan sat idle. Plans were made to reconstitute the companies, phase out models, and close dealerships. More than 300,000 people in Michigan lost their jobs. In a town founded by a man named Cadillac, you could no longer purchase a Cadillac. It was a historic day, and I took a swing by the Renaissance Center downtown, GM's headquarters. Japanese and German media crews were camped across the street, waiting to beam live to Tokyo and Berlin the news that they had finally won. I gave a German the welcome-to-town thumbs up, and he gave me a self-important frown. Funny, foreign journalists are even bigger assholes than their American counterparts. Regardless of their national origin, most of the media knew nothing about the machinations in the boardroom, but that never stopped them from pretending they did. If the German had bothered to ask, I would have told him the Renaissance complex was half-empty and the executive suites faced Canada so the GM executives wouldn't have to look down on the devastation of Detroit. Sniffing for a story, I jumped in my 73-checker cab made in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and headed for Hamtramck, remembering the American Axle plant located there. The plant which straddles Detroit and Hamtramck, was the largest in Axel's sprawling worldwide manufacturing complex. It mainly produced axles for GM's heavy-duty pickups, which accounted for about three-quarters of its sales. Beleaguered Hamtramck, an industrial hamlet of 22,000 people that is completely surrounded by the city of Detroit, was increasingly becoming a town with too many mice and not enough men. A welfare office opened on Joseph Kampow Street, an almost unthinkable concept in this once Polish, once working-class town. The mayor had her car stolen, and an elderly city councilman tried to beat off a carjacker with a cane. He failed, and the carjacker made off with his jalopy. And his cane. Since American Axle was spun off from General Motors and reconstituted in 1994, the UAW negotiated with American Axle, not General Motors. When I had arrived back home the previous winter, Local 235 here was on strike. It was a cold, bitter dispute, complete with old-school fires in the oil drums. The unionized workers, numbering nearly 2,000 at the time, lost. They gave in to deep wage cuts in some cases from $28 an hour to $14, in exchange for keeping their jobs. Apparently, it was not enough. In contrast, Dick Dauk, the CEO and chairman of American Axle, was given an $8.5 million bonus by his board of directors after the strike and gave assurances to the workers and the city of Hamtramck that he would keep production there. It was lip service. At 6 a.m., with the streets of Hamtramck all but empty, Bill Alford, the president of Local 235, shambled up the street to punch in for work at plant number eight. He cut a pathetic figure, 
one shoe untied and dressed in a hockey sweater with a large C embossed on the chest. C is for captain, but Alfred was now the captain of almost nobody. As GM planned to officially declare bankruptcy, more than 500 workers employed at the plant quietly received a letter by FedEx informing them that they had been indefinitely laid off. Normally, presidents of local unions do not go to work at the plant, as management prefers not to have labor agitators on its factory floors. But when there were too few employees to do the work, Alfred was required by contract to return to the plant. And so Alfred was left with the humiliating task of having to pack up his workplace and load crates of tools and machinery onto a truck bound for Texas and Mexico. They don't want a middle class, Alfred told me as we stood in the rain outside the plant, his shoestring still untied. I see that in the future people will have to move to Mexico for a job. This is a dark day for the American laborer. I went to see about an interview with Dick Dowk at his corporate headquarters down the street. I was thrown off the property by security. I went back to the union hall, where workers were flowing in trying to find out what the hell was going on with their jobs. I'm not ever going to buy another Chevy, said a hard, lean man named Jeff Johnson. Johnson received the layoff notice on Saturday, his birthday, mistaking the FedEx package for a present. I'm not buying another new car because I'm not ever going to be able to afford a new car. Johnson laughed. It's a good thing they ain't letting us back in there. I'd fuck up all that machinery that I could, motherfuckers. And with that, he was gone. Dow had betrayed Hamtramck, and I wrote the story that way. Nevertheless, my paper was the voice of the business class, and our executives belonged to the same social clubs as our masters of the universe. One of them stopped at my desk to explain to me Dauk's thinking and his unhappiness with my story. Look, he said to me, taking a chair next to my desk. He was wearing a starched blue shirt and suspenders. Dick believed in the competitiveness of U.S. manufacturing, and he tried to make it work. But he couldn't, not with the absenteeism and the entitlement mindset of the Michigan worker. Apparently one-third of Axel's workforce was out sick on any given day of the week, he explained. How do you know that? I asked. You just going to take his word for it, or does he have the paperwork to back it up? Tell Dick for me. I'll meet with him any time of the day, but if he's going to make claims like that, I need to see the proof. Okay, Charlie, he said, patting me on the shoulder. Try to be a little more discerning in your assessments. Upset, I went outside for a cigarette. The city... What's left of it burns night after night. Nature, in the form of pheasants, hawks, foxes, coyotes, and wild dogs, had stepped in to fill the vacuum, reclaiming a little more of the landscape each day. The streets were empty and cratered. The skyscrapers were holograms. I stood and admired a cottonwood sapling growing out of the roof of the Lafayette building. This was like living in Pompeii, except the people weren't covered in ash, we were alive. By the end of the year, with Hamtramck on the verge of bankruptcy and an official unemployment rate near 15% in the state of Michigan, the price of stock in American Axle had tripled. Dowk got a $1 million raise. And if you needed a metaphor for how retrograde things were becoming, a beaver was sighted nesting in the Detroit River for the first time in 75 years. We're back now? We are. 
You think that was me reading that? Do you think oh, that was I'm me? Starting to think it was you, actually. Cylon Raiders destroy all humans. <laughs> that guy's got a lot. He's got a lot on the ball. <laughs> I think he got paid for that. It, your material really comes through in his voice. <laughs> they got me a C-list actor. <laughs> Two hundred bucks. Hey, we all need to work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, before we get out of here, uh, before you turn on the football and hug you. Babies and mm-hmm. start playing with your new stuff. Those kids we're not sure if you have or don't have. Yes. Don't get them nothing. <laughs> See, that's, that's straight, Teach them a lesson. That's straight financial advice from Luke Nowacki. Don't spend your money. Stiff your kids. They don't need it. It's been a tough year, kid. Go play with your socks. I kind of like it. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Listen, one thing you should do for yourself. Look, there's, there's always what happens in the new year to the market. Takes us always, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So listen, you got to. Right. Lo- I keep telling you this, folks. Rates, mortgage rates, are not gonna get much no. lower. They go one way now, and that's up. No. So you could be saving money. And is 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 Hall gonna inst- extend this into um, uh, January? Yeah. The uh, the free appraisal. There's only one way to find out, and that's by calling them. Right. What would that number be? Two four eight three zero eight five thousand. That sounds right. Yeah. But look, it, this is the Christmas show. You got a week left. We know for sure that free appraisals up to the end of the year. When I see talk to you next year, I'll let you know what's going on with Hall. But look, you got a week left. Do lower, it. Refi your house. Lower your payments. I mean, this isn't a hustle. This isn't a sales job. You you want to spend less for the same thing that you have. You want to save money. You know. Never hurts to find out. Refi, call them yeah, up. Do They're it. not going to make you do it. Nope. Right. Okay, so uh, make you do it. believe it or not, closing times have sped up. What? Hey, that's what I It's yeah. impossible. It's the, no, it's, it's the race to the end of the year, it's isn't real. it? They don't even have to come in your house to, you know, to do the appraisal. It's a virtual appraisal, bro. Right? <laughs> that's what speeds it up. You know who does it? Who? The guy that narrated my book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a computer. Probably. The virtual guy reading the book, and he can virtually praise your home right now. The majority of loans at Hall Financial are closing in 10 business days. Just go to the website and click on Hall Financial. Get yourself started. Get some questions answered, okay? It's not a hard sell. Just do it, folks. Think about it. Get your money in order. DavidHallMortgage.com. That's DavidHallMortgage.com. Or call 248-308-5000. Dig this. Let's take it out with this. Hall Financial. Lower payments, better options, more personal attention. NMLS. What is NMLS? Uh, national um, lender or something. Mortgage and lender. Yeah, I don't know. It's a number. Google it. This is no bullshit news. So <laughs> I don't we know. We don't Google know. It. One four six seven four three five. You think I believe everything I see on Google? Bing it. Listen, guys, it's been a hell of a year. I want to. I want to thank all of you for being part of this. Part of this community. You know, wanting to hear all sides of things. Just going along for the ride. We do. I know. I know. Better days are on, on the horizon because we do have each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I haven't said that. Just enjoy Christmas. Amen. Right on. And I'm thinking about you, New York. I don't know. I always think about New York and Christmas. Spend a couple there. So, nothing more, any more beautiful than snow, fresh snow, in Macy's window at Central Park. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. There was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank, and all that.
Won't see another one On them he sang a song The rare old mountain dew I turned my face away And dreamed about you God, I'm the lucky one Came in late to one I've got a feeling This year is for me and you So happy Christmas I love you, baby I can see a better time When all our dreams come true They got cars big as bars They got rivers of gold But the wind goes right through you It's no place for the old When you first took my hand On a cold Christmas Eve You promised me Broadway was waiting for me You were pretty queen of New York City When, when the, the band, band finished playing They held up for more Sinatra was swinging All the drums they were singing We kissed on the corner Then danced through the night The boys of the NYPD choir Were singing Go away, babe And the bells were ringing out For Christmas Day Christmas Day 